listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week on the podcast, we are asking, are global green resource wars looming because countries are guarding vital materials needed in environmentally conscious cars and products? Keith, it's a bit of a mouthful, this one. <laughs> Can you break it down for us? Yes, absolutely. The focus is on these, what are called green resource wars. So resource wars are where you get countries that are battling over rivers, for example, and access to water. And when you get a, a country that decides to put a dam on a river, which then affects people living downstream in, in other countries. So these are all resource wars. Um, in the United States on the West Coast, they've actually led to shooting wars between mm. states and landowners, etc. This is focusing on the good news, which is that we're moving more and more into electronic vehicles. We're gradually seeing the phasing out of petrol. Yeah. A long way to go yet, but mm. it's quite clear that the writing is on the wall. The good news is that we're going to be burning less petrol, in theory, into the future. The bad news is that there are essential items like cobalt and lithium that you need for this. And particularly from an American point of view, when you look back at the rise of oil, the second oil era, the first oil era was whale oil. So the United States was, particularly on the East Coast, Massachusetts, was certainly big in in harvesting whale oil, as Australia was as well. Mm. And then we exterminated most of the, the whales. We couldn't <sighs> get the blubber, et cetera. Yeah. And then around the 1860s, they discover oil, which farmers had known about for a long time because they actually cursed themselves if they found oil bubbling up to the surface because it ruined their farmland. Mm. And so this major energy revolution begins in the 1860s. It has a few ups and downs until the Germans perfect the development of horseless carriages, what we now call automobiles or cars. So that's early 20th century. And America found itself well endowed with lots and lots of oil. For many years, America was a major oil exporter, certainly the world's biggest oil user. The Pentagon remains the world's largest single customer for oil. We're looking as though we're coming out of that era. That's the good news. We're coming out of the oil era. However, this time around, looking for cobalt and lithium, most of those metals are not found in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the internal advantage which the Americans had from the late 19th century onwards because they were using their own fuel now doesn't apply. And so you've got a number of countries that do have cobalt and lithium. And so suddenly we're finding far more interest in those countries that have cobalt and lithium. And it's interesting that Democratic Republic of Congo is being referred to as the Saudi Arabia of cobalt. Mm. And for two decades, its cobalt, which is 80% of the world's known reserves, has been highly praised for its role in mobile phone manufacturing. Although, of course, you know, it's causing a huge amount of human suffering and really wrecking the land. So what is interesting is that the Chinese are going around the world buying up rare earth mining. Mm-hmm. The Americans have been rather slow on the uptake Drop here. the ball. They're moving across electronic vehicles, but they're not going to be able to get the energy, you know, this vital component 
of being able to develop the energy or, or, or for mobile phones, et cetera. Yeah. This is why they foreshadow the whole issue of resource wars. And the fight over mines looks to be looming like you've just explained to us. Where are most of these mines located and who kind of has what at the moment? Because I understand China, like you said, has some, but there are other countries buying into. Let me just say in regard to Congo, there are 19 mines operating and 15 are owned by the Chinese. Wow. That's most. <laughs> that, that. <laughs> That's most of them. <laughs> and remember, we're talking about the Saudi Arabia yes. of, of that area. Yeah. So certainly Congo is very important. Australia, of course, also gets some mention. We've got a lot of rare earths here, mm. as CSIRO like to remind government. It's just that we're not doing enough research into that. The article says the bulk of the world's lithium production occurs in Australia, Chile and China. There are unexploited reserves in the southern part of Bolivia where it joins China and Argentina, and there's actually a lithium triangle. Oh, <laughs> Ideal for mining. China owns lithium mines outright throughout that triangle and in Australia. Yeah, okay. So they're buying up Australia, not only real estate, they're buying up the mines as well. And so two-thirds of the world's lithium processing is done in Chinese-owned facilities. So is this a case then of a lack of planning? I mean, I know the Americans can buy it back off the Chinese, but obviously it's not a cost-effective way to do it. If it's up for sale, they can buy it. Well, that's right. (laughs) So has this been a case of a lack of planning on on a country's part like the US or have the green manufacturers been too ambitious with their plans? The green manufacturers have simply overlooked this weakness in their ideas, particularly when you look at Tesla's ambition to produce 20 million electronic vehicles a year in the year 2030. And that alone will require close to two times the present global annual supply of these minerals. On the one hand, you've got these green entrepreneurs that are so inspiring, but at the same time, we just don't have cobalt and lithium, which will satisfy that sort of level of global demand. Scarily as well, I wanted to touch on this, the process to mine a lot of these materials is then in turn affecting the environment in a negative way. Are the two cancelling each other out, this idea of green vehicles, but let's destroy the earth to make them? I think that's a good way of summarising it. (laughs) It's interesting to note that in the case of lithium, mining requires evaporation ponds. So you need half a million gallons of water for every metric tonne of lithium. So you need huge amounts of water Mm. for this processing. And the process accounts for 65% of the total amount of water used in that region. Right. Remember, we've got farmers who also got their eye on it, householders who want to have it for their own domestic use. But it's just simply not working out that way. That's why they talk about resource wars. With this situation particularly, China's obviously raced in and bought a bunch of these mines and the US has seen lagging. Are there any other countries that are major players in these potential green resource wars? I think there are a number of players that have got their eye on what could be done, which also sort of moves us to Afghanistan, which we've touched on in the past. So when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, they sent in a team of geologists to find out exactly what is in the mountains in Afghanistan. The geologists figured there are about $2 trillion worth of minerals. Now, it's not just cobalt and lithium, but a Mm. whole variety of other items. The figure is now around $3 trillion. The problem, of course, is that you've got to deal with the Taliban and you've got all sorts of difficulties with mining, but Afghanistan could be another area with large 
deposits, the Pentagon has referred to Afghanistan as the Saudi Arabia of lithium. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we've got, a, we've got a Saudi Arabia of cobalt. Cobalt, and we've got one of lithium Great. as well. The dilemma will be for Western countries who are trying to boycott the Taliban. In fact, they're going to have to improve relations with the Taliban, ignore their human rights record if they want to get at that lithium that's encased in the rocks in Afghanistan. You are listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter, a podcast in which we break down a topic in foreign affairs and politics to help you understand it better. This week, we are talking about the potential for global green resource wars. Now, Keith, you were just kind of touching on it a little bit in terms of the impacts. We've talked about the environmental impacts of these sort of mines and, you know, the wars that could loom over them. But it's also impacting local communities, isn't it? Oh, it is, absolutely. And we've seen that with a lot of resource gathering, not just cobalt and lithium, but of course, you could look at what drilling for oil has done in Nigeria, etc. So, Australia is lucky. We have very tough environmental laws. Some would say we should be even tougher. But we do take care of local communities, including Indigenous communities, etc. whereas that does not apply when you go overseas. And, of course, the really big worry for people is the whole question of the law of the sea mm. and the seabed. Mm. Well, it's an issue in which I've been involved since 1974 when I attended the first session of the UN Law of the Sea Conference. That conference was looking at the ability of the international community and individual countries to get to the seabed. So if you can imagine walking into the water here in, say, Sydney, you would walk for quite a while out and you'd be on the territorial, in the territorial sea, which goes out for three miles. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, you would go out for 12 miles, which is now your coastal zone. So we've gone from three to 12. So Mm -hmm. you control everything that happens within that period. But then beyond that, you go out for another 188 miles. That's your exclusive economic zone. Okay. So Australia, if you add up all of our water, we are responsible for about 10% of the Earth's surface. Wow. In our little corner of the globe. Yeah, it's impressive. Include Antarctica. Yeah. All of Australia, mainland, all of the islands. They say that when you're flying from Sydney to London, you spend a third of your time just getting out of Australian airspace. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You watch the map. So we have a huge amount of area that's going under state control in terms of the exclusive economic zone, which was not what we were originally hoping for in 1974. What the original intention would be is that we would internationalise the seabed. Arvid Pardo, who was then the representative of Malta, gave a speech a couple of years earlier to the UN General Assembly that ran on for four hours, which mm. is long even by UN standards. <laughs> and Pardo, who's a delightful old fellow, I had a lot of meetings with him. Pardo talked about the need to avoid a scramble for the seabed, much as we had had a scramble for Africa a century earlier and the risk of war for the seabed. So he then proposed updating the law of the sea and making it applicable to the seabed. So you're not just looking at those narrow areas around your coastline, but going on to the seabed and getting away from the continental shelf and going right on to the seabed. So if you go looking for the Titanic, for example, it takes you about an hour and a half to get down there. But it's still on the territorial shelf yeah, of the Americas. Right. Beyond that, if you go down another four and a half hours, oh my goodness. you hit the seabed. Yeah. And there are all sorts of life forms down there that are totally unknown on, on the surface. 
Because obviously they don't have eyes because there's no light down there. That's right. In 1978, they come across these three-foot-long giant worms. <laughs> so it's very nice that to know that if we do end up destroying life on the surface of the earth... They'll still be there. They'll still be there. <laughs> and in, in the fullness of time, millions of years later, yes. they'll be our replacements on the surface. So you're down on the seabed, and on the seabed, there are what are called polymetallic nodules, okay. which look like potatoes. Okay. These are the minerals that have been washed off the land and they are dense mineral lumps. So the suggestion has been that these metallic elements would contain lithium and cobalt, but also copper, which is another metal required for a lot of battery manufacturing. There is this discussion within the UN agency, the International Seabed Authority, to start issuing licenses to enable companies to start scraping these nodules off the seabed. So, mm-hmm. so Arvid Pardo warned us that eventually technology would improve. If you, my favourite example is North Sea oil. The way in which that is drilled, um, brought ashore in Norway or the United Kingdom, is a form of technology which would have been inconceivable, say, in 1945. Mm. You know, entire towns built out to sea. It's an amazing engineering achievement mm. for those platforms. In the same way, we're obviously going to improve our technology of extraction in terms of being able to scrape stuff off the seabed. The problem is it's going to damage the environment and including damaging the fishing as well. So that's going to be another major issue that we're going to wreck the maritime environment. And, of course, fish are a major source of food plus other forms of wildlife in the sea, which will be affected by this type of mining should it ever get off the ground. Yeah, and I guess the other concern with that is that territory is fishy, literally. Who who does it belong to? Well, we don't know. It's international waters. This could also be uh, ramping up, I guess, of the resource wars. That's right, because you're going to obviously have, as Arvid Pardo warned us all those decades ago, you're going to end up with people in competition mm. to get at the seabed. And it'll be, again, a way for the rich countries to get in first because they've got the sophisticated technology which is required and poorer countries will lose out. Now, Arvid Pardo, when he suggested internationalising all of this, saw it as a way of boosting the amount of money which could go to help developing countries. But that's not how it's going to work out. Mm. It'll end up going into the hands of some very rich players like the American corporations, Chinese corporations, etc., There are calls I've read, uh, and you sent me an article that we discussed by Cox and Cox. Two Coxes wrote this article we're discussing, talking about these potential green resource wars. One of the calls they made was to actually overhaul the green transport industry. Can you talk me through what the authors suggest should happen rather than this reliance on electric vehicles? Yeah, well, what they're saying, in fact, is we just need to get away from the use of private-owned vehicles, etc., have the creation to use the Australian expression, walkable communities, Mm. have more public transport, and so make life an an easier thing by, as they say, consider an overhaul of the whole transportation system to move it away from a fixation on personal vehicles and towards walking, pedalling, and a truly effective nationwide public transport system, as well as very local ones, which could indeed then be run on electricity while perhaps helping to avoid 
future disastrous resource wars. Now, of course, that goes back to the whole question, well, where are you going to get the electricity from? Mm. The coal industry will say, well, you've come back to us, guys. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> so it means we've got to find ways of improving solar energy, and, of course, that requires lithium and cobalt. <laughs> We're truly in a very difficult situation here, but it certainly does require something that we should look at in a holistic way about how to improve the way in which people move around, perhaps even deciding that we have less physical movement and more movement by Zoom Mm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we make meetings more virtual. We can do these recordings, (laughs) not in the studio in the middle of Sydney, but we can do it from our respective homes or something like that. And, of course, in a sense, COVID has shown that it's possible. It does. I'm not saying it's perfect because you've got all sorts of mental health issues that has arisen. But it says here that America should aim to produce fewer and far smaller vehicles than are currently planned. After all, electrified versions of the big-ass trucks and SUVs (laughs) for the present moment will also require bigger, heavier batteries like the one in the F-150 Lightning pickup truck. I don't know who makes that. (laughs) Um, which weighs 1,800 pounds and is the size of two mattresses. My God. And the other point, just to finish up on this, they've got a lovely phrase at the end of the article. Well, it's a haunting phrase. No. They talk about green sacrifice zones. Mm. In other words, that where the mining is going to be done, like Congo, for example, or Afghanistan eventually, that they will be seen as green sacrifice zones because we will be sacrificing the environment and also the local populations so as to enable people to go around in their own electric vehicles. Well, unfortunately, Keith, it looks like there's no other answer but to have to kind of continue with these plans. Thank you so much for all your insights today. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.